Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're doing another in a series of shows from Anchorage, Alaska. If you are a regular listener, you have no doubt heard some of the other programming that has originated from this very venue. It is May of 2023, and we're just excited about the National Indian Health Board and what they've pulled together in the National Tribal Health Conference. People from all over the country here, especially those making a difference in Indian country, one of them is now sitting across from me, Anna Helena Skinstad. Dr. Skinstad, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. You and I have a history that uh, I'm just learning goes back about equal distance as far as working with tribal communities. Back in the late 90s, kind of mid-90s, I was invited to leave the New York City area where my wife and I and our family was to uh, come out to Oklahoma mm -hmm. and to open up a state-of-the-art diabetes center. Had some amazing experiences. And, of course, working with diabetes in Oklahoma, we started working closely with uh, tribal communities. I know your connections go to about that time. Tell us your story for those who don't know you. I am a Norwegian-educated clinical psychologist, and I fell in love with an American. So I immigrated in 1990, and the first time I was funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, I was serving the state of Iowa. Hmm. And then uh, SAMHSA was very pleased with what the Addiction Technology Transfer Center did, so they came back to us and said, let us ask you to expand to other states. And the goal is to cover the country. Mm. So my advisory council at the time said, the data is very clear. The population we want you to really serve are the Native American communities, so we will want you to align the center with then the Aberdeen Area Indian Health Service. Mm. So I did that. And then with that strong suggestion from my advisory council, I was able to hire PhD-level Native American professionals mm. in those states. And that was the beginning of my very strong commitment to this work. And there's one person I specifically want to mention, and he was also doing work in diabetes. Um, his name was Dr. Ma Dwayne Mackey, and he was a Santee Sioux trouble member. And he was at the University of South Dakota at the time. So he and I started working, and it became a very good, long working relationship. He passed away prematurely mm. in 2010, but in those 12 years, he had developed something that was way before its time, and that was a 
Native American cultural sensitivity training mm. for mental health and substance abuse providers in the state of South Dakota. What we discovered was that when we looked at the workforce, 45% at that time of Native Americans were not served and treated in Native community providers associations or agencies. Mm -hmm. And they were treated by women between 45 and 55 who were white and had absolutely no knowledge mm. of the cultural aspect. So he developed this incredible curriculum that we still use and was awarded the Annapolis Coalition Annual Award for the most innovative workforce development program. Mm. And... When he passed, uh, that was, of course, something I would continue doing. But we also developed programs for Native American substance abuse counselors who wanted to be certified and licensed. Mm -hmm. And we carry all those programs with us still. And a lot of other things, of course, because it's a long time. Uh -huh. It's 13 years ago. Uh, we still think about his vision because that kind of gave us guidance as to how we should run the center, how not to run it, and how to be inviting and respectful to everybody who wanted to learn more about the culture. It's a beautiful story, and... Uh... Seems like I had the privilege of connecting with Dr. Mackey in some context. I mean, the name is very familiar. We didn't have a close relationship, obviously. But it's amazing just to hear your journey mm -hmm. from Europe here to the States and then getting so involved in Indian country. I actually heard your name here at this venue. You and I had not had the privilege of meeting before this. And uh, someone was saying, you've got to meet uh, Dr. Skinstead and get her on the radio show. So... When I get good advice like that, and especially when I have a receptive uh, guest, I'm delighted. So right now, a lot of your activities are being coordinated under a single umbrella. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. that? We were regional centers. So we served states in the upper Midwest, and I specifically focused on tribes. And then SAMHSA decided to split the country up in 10 DHHS regions, which meant that my center was split in three. Wow. However, my program officer, when I called her and said, there is no way I can apply for this, she said, have you read the RFA correctly? I said, no, I, I see what I see. She said, no, but there is a little sentence down here that says that we would like people to apply for population mm. national centers. So I thought, okay, here we go. So we applied for the first National American Indian Alaska Native Addiction Technology Transfer Center and got it in 2012. And then in 2017, SAMHSA extended that concept and we were able to be funded for a National American Indian Alaska Native mental health 
and then prevention TTC. But that became a very sort of difficult uh, thing to promote. So we decided let's put them into an umbrella so we can talk about the Native Center for Behavioral Health and then talk about which branch we are dealing with. Well, that, that definitely helps us. So a lot of folks you know, are listening and they're saying, if, if they're not a professional, you know, they heard you define SAMHSA to begin with, but we're talking about a division of the National Institutes of Health, right? Yes. And uh, SAMHSA deals especially with mental health and addiction issues, correct? Mm -hmm. Give us again what that acronym stands for. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Okay. And it's part of, so NIH, yes, and DHHS, and SAMHSA is an agency at the same level as Indian Health Service and HRSA. So the three of them are now in the same building. Okay, okay. Well, I didn't realize that organization. Okay. So basically you're developing these uh, health technology transfer centers. Now, for the man on the street, I dare say that means absolutely nothing. Okay, so what so what, what do these, these entities do, and, and why would my listeners be even interested in it? And it's so interesting that you ask about this, because everybody thinking about technology are thinking about television, computers, radios, something like that. Mm -hmm. What we are talking about is soft technologies. Mm. With that, I mean treatment, mm -hmm. prevention, awareness racing, early intervention, and all within the mental health and substance abuse arena. And we have also, within the mental health center, worked on K-12 through because mm. the federal government has discovered, based on data, that the best way to reach kids who are struggling with mental health issues is in their school community. Makes sense. So they don't have to be dependent on transportation, mm -hmm. don't have to leave school. I mean, all the stigmas that these kids would experience, we are trying to eliminate. So that becomes a mental health, but also a prevention issue. Because mm -hmm. we know that if we can treat kids with understanding and support, we are going to reduce behavioral health issues in their teens and in their young adulthood. That's tremendous. So the technology transfer that we're talking about, is it safe to say it's like best practices and treatment and prevention? Absolutely. And so help us get an idea. So someone's listening right now. Maybe they are a tribal leader. Maybe they sit on a tribal council. Maybe they're involved with a tribal health department. We have a lot of non-Native listeners. I know your centers are especially focused on Native American mm -hmm. uh, needs, but talk to us about why someone might want to visit a website, give a call to someone in your department. Tell us a little bit about that. Because we are focused on the behavioral health workforce. Mm. In other words, trying to get the workforce uh, more educated and more aware of what to look for and able to think about how can we develop a treatment program, whether it's outpatient or inpatient, in our tribal community or in our urban Indian area. Mm -hmm. And 
we are training on that topic. And not only that, but we are also reaching out to recovery, mm. peer support, um, community health workers, people who are very committed to what they're doing, but don't have the education or the financial opportunity to do this. And we are running programs very much on Zoom, but now, after the pandemic is sort of over, we are hoping to be more face-to-face as well. So it's training of the workforce. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, we have been working very much on providing technical assistance. So think about it from a tribal leader's point of view. He or she may have gotten the tribal council to agree on developing a treatment program or a prevention program, and they don't know how quite to do this. Mm -hmm. And we are then approached, and we try to respond to them with all the technical assistance we can provide, or at least uh, send people somewhere. And on that note, I want you to know that when the pandemic hit us, Mm -hmm. knowing that the tribal communities want to see people, they want to be interacting with people. I remember when we were sent home from the College of Public Health at the University of Iowa, I instituted a daily meeting with staff because I was very worried. It's not just us and the providers, but it's also how to maintain contact with the staff Mm -hmm, we are working with. mm -hmm. So we sat and talked and asked ourselves, how can we help the tribal community? We want to talk more about this. This is a fascinating story, but um, we just have to step away briefly. Before we do, there are folks already who want to reach out to you. So is there a single place where people could go if they want to contact you or, or get access to the resources that you've developed? What you do is to go to our Native Center for Behavioral Health webpage, and it's www.nativecenter.org. Okay, www.nativecenter.org. Yes. I got it. we got to step away just briefly. Dr. David DeRose, I'll be back with Dr. Skinstad right after these important messages. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong. We are resilient. And we will get through this together. But these are stressful times. And it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid. But there is hope. Reach out to someone. Connect with your friends. Stay in touch with your community. And know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. 
Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're continuing our dialogue with Anna Helena Skinstad. Dr. Skinstad is uh, connected with the University of Iowa. She's a clinical professor there with the College of Public Health and the Department of Community and Behavioral Health. But her special role over the last several decades has been in Native American substance abuse and mental health resources, developing programs, coordinating things. And we're just so grateful to have you on the show today. Thank you. We started by talking about uh, a phenomenon that was happening in South Dakota that you shared back in the late 1990s where many of the First Nation peoples were being treated for mental health conditions by non-Native practitioners. Uh The figure you mentioned was in the range of 45%. Today, I know in many places, especially in urban areas, that narrative has not changed. Many First Nation peoples being treated by non-Natives, not having that cultural awareness Tell us a little bit, for those who may be listening to the show who aren't Native, maybe they're interested because they have an interest in Native health issues, maybe they just tune in, but I dare say probably every practitioner in America has Native American patients, whether they've asked the question or whether the individual has disclosed that or not, right? So is there a reason that someone should go to that website, nativecenter.org, if they're say, a primary care provider or a mental health professional, they're not working with a tribal health program. Is there a reason for them to visit your site? One of the very most important things is the cultural understanding Mm. of what the patient is coming to them with of intergenerational trauma, historical trauma, issues of not being understood talking a second language because that first language is the native language Mm -hmm. and 
then thinking about how are we going to do this when we want to help them with their problem and we want to use evidence-based practices in our approach. Mm -hmm. And evidence-based practices are based on Western way of doing treatment and prevention. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't include the research that has been done usually hasn't included any natives. So you are basing the research on the general population and the cultural variations are gone. And one of the things that really we use a lot, spend a lot of time doing, is helping a provider look at a Western-based practice and think about how is that going to be received by Mm. the patient. And how is the culture from their tribal communities incorporated in the way they are offering treatment? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that often happens when we do technical assistance is that tribal programs come to us with questions. How do we combine the Western and the cultural ways? Mm -hmm. And that takes time to assist them with. If you go to an urban Indian community where 70% of natives live, you have a very great variation in level of assimilation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is very important to understand because if you are very assimilated, you may not want to be treated with a cultural lens. Mm. But if you are bicultural or you are traditional, then your provider needs to think in the concept of this person may want to see a medicine person. Mm -hmm. This person may want to be discussing his or her issues with a spiritual leader. So thinking about level of assimilation and acculturation in an urban Indian setting, but also in a tribal community, How are you able to provide the best kind of service, even though it is based on Western way of doing research? Mm -hmm. There are hundreds of years of practice, experience-based practice, Mm -hmm. that should be very important in that provider's approach to a native client. So all of that would be something you would be able to access on our web pages. Well, well. One of the main takeaway points that I hear you sharing, Dr. Skinstead, is simply if someone is listening into this interview and they say, wow, this is something I need to be aware of, I hear you saying one of the first things you can do is basically just talk with the patient and you know, try to understand where they're at as far as their cultural connectedness, mm-hmm. if you will, because that's going to help guide you. How do you need to approach that patient? What do you need to be sensitive to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's come back to resources there on the nativecenter.org. I understand um, that there's been a project. I heard a catchy uh, title, Research at the Speed of Trust. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what that's all about. Doing research in Native communities has to be done in a very sensitive way. And there has been abuses mm-hmm. by many of our colleagues inadvertently, possibly. Uh, So tribes will be a little reluctant to engage. And this publication was developed 
as a way of sharing with our tribal communities or communities that work with Western professionals the model of community-based participatory programming and research. In other words, you include the tribes before you start developing your hypothesis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you include them in how this is implemented and how you do this, but even more so, before you even start, I need, as a researcher at the University of Iowa, I need IRB approval. Mm -hmm. That's not going to be enough in the Native community. So you would have to go to, if there is a tribal IRB, if there is an IHS by IRB, I don't know exactly what is in every community, but you need to be approved. So let's uh, talk about this, these institutional review boards. For someone who's just jumping in, they say, oh, this sounds very technical. I mean, they've got two doctors sitting here across from each other. And uh, it may be someone who is a tribal member. Uh, it may be someone who, yes, they may be even living on a reservation. They may have some contact or some interaction with an academic institution. Maybe they're a student. Mm -hmm. And they say, boy, it would be great to do something on our tribe. We're talking about these institutional review boards. Just what are they and why do they exist? Is this uh, some kind of hurdle that they need to uh, jump through? Or what is the meaning of these IRBs? Uh, one thing that started all this is, believe it or not, Second World War. Hmm. During the Second World War, the German researchers did research on people in concentration camps mm -hmm. with no real empathy for what they were doing. Fair enough. So from then on, the Helsinki Convention developed a model for what you needed to do to be able to conduct research. And mm -hmm. that has developed. So there are issues around informed consent. There is issue around how do you do this? How do you collect data? And if there are something sensitive you're going to ask about, you have to line up option for the person you engage with. So if this is upsetting, this person has somewhere to go mm -hmm. to get support. So it's very important to do this. But the Native communities have more concerns than just what we are concerned about. And there are so many cases showing how not to do this. Mm. So what we wanted to do was to create a publication and show how to do this. And as we have talked about, ask the patient, ask the person mm. you're working with where they are, how culturally involved they are, etc. Yes. One of the things that, that we definitely want to talk about in this show, with all the, the background that you have, for individuals who... Maybe they come from a Native background. Maybe they don't. We want to talk about how these Native roots influence mental health services or change how addiction services are, are delivered. Because a lot of people say, well, why do you have to make this different for one segment of the population? I mean, if you're addicted to a drug, you're addicted to a drug. If you have a mental health problem, you have a mental health problem. I'm just speaking kind of a lay perception of this, you know, why all this uh, this extra work doesn't just one size fit all, and maybe we don't need to go to the uh, medical gowns 
or something like that where one size definitely doesn't fit, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to go there, but we got to step away just briefly. I know a lot of folks jump on and off the show. We already gave the contact information once, but I want to give that again. Tell us how to engage with your center. You do that two ways. You can go on our web pages and send us an email. You can also pick up the phone and call us. And we have many people working across the country with us with special expertise. And they hear us give a presentation and say, oh, I want to ask her something. And that's when... You do either phoning or emailing. Okay. And I know the one spot, if we're going to remember nothing else, is simply www.nativecenter.org. Have I got that down? Yes. Okay. We'll give some other contact information when we come back. More information about mental health services, addiction services, especially relevant to First Nation peoples. Dr. DeRose with Dr. Skinstad will be back right after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. 
Welcome back to the second half of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose with Dr. Anna Helena Skinstad. She has been sharing with us some of the great work that she and her team have been doing out of the state of Iowa, University of Iowa, where she is a clinical professor at the College of Public Health in the Department of Community and Behavioral Health. You may know her because of her role in Native mental health and mental substance abuse treatment, and uh, we've been talking about the Native Center for Behavioral Health. It kind of serves as the umbrella Mm -hmm. for uh, all of the activities that you and your team are involved with. I know one of the things that has been getting so much attention and has impacted all of us, I still do a limited amount of uh, primary care clinical practice as an internal medicine specialist, and the practice landscape continues to change, uh, and it relates to... uh, Addictive substances, controlled substances, especially the opiates, and uh, things that um, we used to uh, be able to prescribe without anyone looking over our shoulder, uh, hopefully responsibly, but uh, as we know historically, not always so, uh, have now come under the magnifying glass. So I work uh, under the umbrella of a clinic, and we've got people monitoring what we're doing there. We have people at uh, various governmental levels. We have state databases now. You've been very involved with the tribal opioid response. Tell us a little bit about what your group has been doing in that uh, arena. In, I think 2018 was the first time SAMHSA provided tribal communities with the opportunity to apply for grants to develop medications for opioid use disorders, clinics, in their community. And these were two-year grants, and we were given the responsibility of providing technical assistance. Okay. And we worked with tribes across the country up until last October, and someone else took over this part of the work. But one of the very challenging questions we got all the time was, how are we integrating a medication for opiate use disorders into a culturally informed treatment program? So when we talk about medications, we're thinking things like methadone, suboxone, things like that. Yes. Okay. And so this is not part of, obviously, indigenous culture. No. These things didn't exist before European contact. Mm-hmm. And so the providers are saying, well, how do we use this? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how did the dialogue go from there? It was an interesting, very encouraging dialogue because one of the approaches we took was that you know most about the inf- culturally informed programs. You are the resource on that. We can help you integrate the Western-based M-O-U-D into this. And we discovered that when they felt empowered, they started feeling more able to do this. And we turned the conversation from a deficit model, where Mm. we're looking at what they can't do, to the strength-based model. And that's what we then published in a little brochure with providers giving us examples of their success stories. Wonderful. And that is a very important approach because 
it's very easy to focus on the negatives mm -hmm. because there are so many challenges in right, right. Native communities, but that's overlooking their resources. And that's what we try to do. And so you put together a, a monograph, right, mm -hmm. that, that describes this. Is this something accessible on the website? Absolutely, yes. And how would someone find it? You would go to the ATTC part of our website and go to the resources, and you can download the publication called Prevention, Treatment, and Recovery Innovations in Native American Communities. Well, I love the title. So it's talking about innovations, things that yeah. have actually grown out of tribal communities, Absolutely. tribal providers, and what they found that works. Yes. That is wonderful. You and I were speaking off air, Dr. Skinstad, about some of the changes that took place of necessity because of the COVID pandemic. And something interesting grew out of that. You mentioned something about listening sessions mm -hmm. with providers. Tell me how that all came about. Because if we go back to March 2020, we all were sent home to do whatever we needed to do from our home office and socially uh, distancing. And that's very uncultural, <laughs> sensitive for Native communities. Right. And I thought, how are we going to do this? And staff and I brainstormed. And we came up with the concept that we need to listen. There's going to be a lot of things thrown out from the federal government in an effort to assist. But we need to listen. We can't tell them what to do. We need to listen. So we actually, for almost two years, ran eight listening sessions a week. Mm. And we did that by taking notes and facilitating discussion, having brief introductions, and then sending out resource documents every single week to these participants so mm. they could look at the resources, think about, and of course, in those days, it was telehealth. How are mm -hmm. we going to do this? Right, right. And when you don't have internet, how are you going to do it? So then you had some of my fabulous colleagues saying, oh, we need to find ways to create hotspots. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever suggestions made the tribal community very much more able to do this than if they had heard nothing. Mm -hmm. And one very a great guy I have worked with, he came and just said, I can't do therapy over the phone. So we talked him through this mm -hmm. and within a week, he had gotten the Zoom up and running in his agency, and he met with his clients, had AA meetings over Zoom. Hmm. I mean, the creativity in the Native community in those days were outstanding. Hmm. And give another example. The Boys and Girls Club here in Alaska uh -huh. initiated an approach that was adopted all over the country. The Meals on Wheels became an issue. Mm. So the boys and girls clubs took over the responsibility of delivering food to people elderly in the villages in wow. Alaska. Wow, that's amazing. That's an amazing story. Yeah, don't you think? Yeah, that's great. So, and one of the things that to me is interesting is, you know, we look at these things, like you shared, we look at these things as obstacles, we look at these as problems. But I love this, uh, you know, strength-based approach. And 
So we go through a pandemic and where people are looking at all the deficits that are mm -hmm. amplified, you're finding new ways, and not you specifically, but your team, mm -hmm. this community yes. that is coming together around the quote table of, of Zoom or Teams or whatever medium you were using and just strategizing, saying this is working, this isn't. So it's an amazing story. I know you've been involved with uh, with some other really exciting things as well. One of the areas that to me is just fascinating has to do with when we speak about mental health and we speak about historical trauma, we're trying to talk to people maybe who are providers who don't come with a cultural understanding. This whole concept, a lot of people think, well, come on, I mean, yeah, everybody's had bad things happening in their life, and they diminish that. There, there's so much of uh, minimizing that. Tell us from, from your vantage point why it's so important for providers to address historical trauma, why that's something that should inform their care. Historical trauma has many different facets, and I'm going to take one example. Intergenerational trauma, if you have a parent who was taken from their parents and put in a boarding school, then that parent does not have a model for how to raise their mm -hmm. child mm -hmm. and have very little knowledge or experience using culture and language in their way of raising their kids. Mm -hmm. We know that culture and language is crucial for very good and healthy development. And we see now across the country almost like a renaissance of cultural focus. Mm -hmm. And the conference here is Culture Heals, Culture Leads, and what is the third? Uh, I don't remember, but it is, the focus is on culture. And um, yes, culture heals, culture knows, culture leads. And that's a very important part of why we need to understand cultural history, cultural genocide, actually. Mm. And it's disconcerting that we in this country don't want to hear that mm -hmm. because that is going to make it more difficult for us to provide the proper service for mental health and substance abuse. I know you deal with a lot of these topics in a very innovative... Well, I shouldn't say I know because I'm just learning about this. I'm assuming that you deal with topics like this in something that I'm just learning about called a leadership academy. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what that's about and who might be a candidate for that. My Leadership Academy is very important for the center. And it started in way back in 2009 when a very distinguished elder from Standing Rock, uh, Dwayne Silk, in a meeting, was very clear. We are graying out. Hmm. We have been very committed to this. Who is taking over? Wow. You guys need to start developing native leaders. So what we did when we got the national ATTC was to get together several native leaders across the country and also natives who've been working on this topic before, and we sat down and we created a curriculum. Hmm. And 
people who are eligible would be behavioral health providers mm -hmm. who might want to take leadership position, who may be clinicians, mm -hmm. middle management, and want to start developing leadership skills. And we pair them with native mentors, and we have several face-to-face -face meetings with them, but of course, during the pandemic, we didn't, but we did it via Zoom, and now we do Zoom and face-to-face, -face, and they develop a capstone project. Interesting. And that capstone project has to be grounded in the community they are serving. They have to discuss it with their supervisor, their elder, spiritual leader, just mm -hmm. to get a real feel for what do the community feel that they get out of this, because the community needs to be invested too. Right, it's not right. just the person who is getting educated. Exactly. We want to speak more about this Leadership Academy. We've got people that are listening to the show that may say, hey, this sounds like something that would fit for me or for maybe a family member, maybe mm -hmm. a fellow tribal member. We do have to step away just one more time. We're talking with Dr. Skinstad. She's heading up the Native Center for Behavioral Health. If you want more information, nativecenter.org. We've got a final segment coming up after some important messages. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org.
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for our final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living Radio. Dr. David DeRose with Anna Helena Skinstad. Dr. Skinstad, it's great to have you here. I know you've been very busy here, and I really appreciate you pulling away and joining us. Thank you. I understood that you actually had a presentation shortly before this interview. How did that go? We presented on our veteran project. Hmm. And the veteran project is very near and dear to my heart. And it's based on data where I was looking at the percentage of Native returning veterans who come back with PTSD, more chronic and more severe. And I was asking myself and my co-director at the time, Sean Beer, why was that? And we decided that this is something that we want to do something with. So we conceptualized this. And he started working on the project. He is retired enlisted man from the 82nd Airborne. Okay. And he was very well read mm-hmm. and started conceptualizing what do we need to take into a project on veterans that will make non-native non-veterans understand how to treat veterans. Mm -hmm. And we called it the healing, the returning warrior. Healing the returning warrior. Yeah. I like it. And we have a, if we want to run a whole day long full project, it's almost like a two and a half day program. Wow. And my goal is to make sure that healthcare providers, behavioral health providers are able to understand the cultural sides of a returning warrior's world Mm -hmm. and also to build capacity in the regions in the sense on the workforce side, how can we get more people trained to inform their communities around them about how to do this? And it is a very successful program. We are still developing it Mm -hmm. because we need special focus on families, on children of veterans, Mm -hmm. on women. Um, But it's a six-module program. And one of the things we have added is the focus on how do Native communities show resilience and support Mm -hmm. to their returning warriors and how do we support the healer. Because Mm -hmm. it's very challenging to listen to what a returning veteran has experienced. Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to do that in a way that will make you not be re-traumatized, but also not get the soldier, the retired warrior, upset on your behalf. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. a very delicate balance. So I'm assuming because of the way you led into this that there's high rates of PTSD among Native American uh, veterans. Yes. And 
I know when you do a whole curriculum, if someone asks you for a take-home point, you're saying, well, hey, you need to go through the whole curriculum. But anything that especially stood out, I mean, if someone's saying, why should I even be interested in engaging with this curriculum, what kind of things could I possibly be missing? I know that's totally underestimating and totally trivializing the whole topic, but what do you say to someone if, if you're on an elevator and they say, well, I am a mental health provider. I treat PTSD and all kinds of people. I don't need any special training. What do you say? PTSD in the native population of returning warriors are more prevalent, more serious, and more chronic. Mm. And that's something that behavioral health professionals need to know. Secondly, there is a higher prevalence of depression and anxiety and suicide. Wow. So if you are an MD and you are starting to treat a returning veteran, you need to know what this person needs and make sure that he or she is connecting to their community because the community, very often tribal communities, are wonderful in accepting and working with the warrior when he or she is returning and need the support because the transition between being enlisted or at an officer rank and then losing your family in Mm. the tribal in the military yes and then coming to someone who's never been in the military That's a very, very, very challenging transition. And that's when depression, PTSD, suicide goes up if we don't meet them where they are. Wow, wow. You talked about this training program, six modules, Healing the Returning Warrior. Is this a program that people can access online? Is it something that they actually go through a cohort of people going through it together, either virtually or in person? How is it delivered? During the pandemic, it was delivered virtually. But it's not something we have put online. And here Mm -hmm. is why. Because if you are working with a veteran and you are trying to study this by yourself, There are some truths that you have to accept that can be so emotionally draining that we have chosen to make sure that we have only Native and veterans offering this program in a way that they can ask questions Mm -hmm. and follow up with somebody. Mm -hmm. We don't want to have people hanging out there with secondary PTSD symptoms because of what they are hearing. Wow, wow, that is very, uh, very considerate. The Leadership Academy, I want to come back to that. Mm -hmm. There are folks that are listening to the show, no doubt, and they're saying, boy, I'm a native mental health Mm -hmm. professional, and maybe early career, maybe Mm mid-career, and they're saying, you know, I think I have ability or have interest in moving, you know, up Mm -hmm. and, and, and leading more. How does someone tap into that? How do they become a part of that? We, once a year, will announce the opportunity to apply. Mm -hmm. And we will select people carefully because we are matching them with a Native mentor Okay, to make sure that there is a positive match. They are working together for over a year Mm -hmm. and in implementing things 
and there has to be a certain level of connection between the two. Tremendous, tremendous. Point of contact. We've got the website down. I'm assuming if someone says, I would really like to be a part of this leadership academy, they're going to go to www.nativecenter.org? Yes. Now, we talked about some other ways to access some of your resources. And is there a, a central phone number that might be helpful for folks to have if they say, I'm just not very good at accessing the Internet, I maybe don't have connectivity, they're listening on the radio? Mm-hmm. And I would say that there is a central number and it is really my number, if you see there, and I would refer them to the right person. So the phone number would be 319-384-1481. Okay, let me see if I've got that correct. 319-384-1481? Yes. Okay. And so if someone says, hey, this was a great show, um, I heard about things. I can't access them on the web. I'd love to talk with someone. Or they just have some questions. Mm-hmm. They can reach out through that number. Yes. Let me give it one more time in case you're driving. I mean, hopefully you've pulled over by now. Uh, just giving you the warning. We don't want you trying to scribble something down on your hand or something looking down from the road. 319, area code, 384 Dr. Skinstad, it has been great having you on the show. Uh, I always tell my guests, when I've got someone who's got such a wealth of information, the clock always wins. There's much more we could talk about that would be profitable, but we do have to wind things up. I always like to give my guests, when we have the opportunity, a chance to say, if you want to leave my listeners with one message, is there something you'd like to encourage them with as we're winding up? First of all, I want to thank you for the honor of being interviewed and to be able to share all the things we're doing. But secondly, I want people to be open to learning more mm. about the different Native communities in their neighborhood and reach out to them, be involved in the culture maybe go to a powwow or two. Mm. And that way you get to know the pride and the joy that you can see in the Native community. Powerful. Thank you so much, Doctor. Thank you very much. We do have to run. Hopefully today's show has given you some things to think about, some things to inspire you, and a new resource nativecenter.org if it wasn't already on your radar screen. For all of us at American Indian and Alaska Native Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.